Good evening and welcome to the Royal Academy of Arts. My name is Amy Blewett and I am the Events and Lectures Coordinator here. I'm delighted to introduce the first in a series of Works You Think You Know events in collaboration with the Folio Society. This series invites celebrated speakers to reconsider culturally familiar works. Tonight I welcome our first guest speaker, Dame Antonia Byatt, who will be exploring Brothers Grimm fairy tales. Known by most as A.S. Byatt, she is internationally renowned for her novels and short stories, including the Booker Prize-winning Possession, The Biographer's Tale and the Quartet, Babel Tower and A Whistling Woman. Her most recent novel, The Children's Book, was published in 2009. Dame Antonia is also a distinguished critic, as well as a writer of fiction. And in 1990, she was appointed CBE, and nine years later, a DBE. Joining her in conversation tonight is Lawrence Norfolk, who is the author of four historical novels which have been translated into 24 languages. In 1993, Lawrence was listed as one of Granta Magazine's 20 Best Young British Writers, and he also writes for a number of newspapers and magazines throughout Europe and America. In 1992, he won the Somerset Maugham Award for his first novel, L'Empereur's Dictionary, and then went on to write The Pope's Rhinoceros in 1996, In the Shape of a Boar in 2001, and John's Eternal's Feast, published in the UK in September 2012. So without further ado, please join me in welcoming our guests, Dame Antonia Byatt and Lawrence Norfolk. Um. Uh, th- thank you for that, Amy. Thank you all um, for coming tonight to this um, wonderfully decorated Rococo room, the sort of room that the inside of which makes me think of perhaps a gingerbread hut in the middle of a dark forest into which you've all been tempted. <laughs> we hope to feed you well. We're here tonight to discuss and talk about and unpack a book which is at le- the very least substantial, The Collected Tales of the, of the Brothers Grimm, You'll know, you'll know some of them, of course. Um, Cinderella, Rumpelstiltskin, Hansel and Gretel. Um, there are others, many more obscure, um, but we're going to hope to um, peel back some of the obscurity and, um, and um, make all plain. Um, I discovered all sorts of um, um, disturbing things when I was um, doing the, some of the research for tonight. Um, one, of the, one of the disturbing things I discovered was that... Um, I'll break the bad news now... Um, that there is no fairy godmother. Um, luckily, I have sitting next to me the next best thing. In fact, much better, I have A.S. Byatt. So um, if I find myself in a tight spot, I know that she'll, she'll, wa- she'll wave the inky wand over my head and all will be well. Uh, Antonio, you have been introduced, but I'm going to do some more introducing. Um, um, you're my friend. Um, you're a novelist, a short story writer, a novellarist, um, an endangered species these days, um, a critic, a reviewer, an editor. You've, in fact, you've edited me. Um, and, um, um, above all, though, a thinker and a doer. There's no point in thinking interesting thoughts unless you do something with them. Um, Antonia has been doing things with them for the last, um, forgive me, half century. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> um, she's the author of... Um, um, I might describe her as the author of a great many tales for adults and for children, but that would be to describe the heroine of um, the, the children's book, which I think is the book that you will be signing later tonight, um, um, which came out in 2009. It's a, it's a monumental atri- achievement, um, a, a work of great scholarship, but also one um, which um, is propelled by huge narrative energies and which I read um, 
happily in an advanced copy with glee uh, in about two sittings. It should take about four or five, but I couldn't put it down. Um, the, um, the, that book um, is, take, has a, as its central character a creator of children's literature um, who is described as the author of a great many tales for adults and for children. Um, and that brings me to my first question, which is a, a broad one tonight, um, which is um, I want to ex- open up the question of who fairy tales are for, who, um, for whom is children's literature? And let me unpack the, a slight ambiguity there. Uh, literature for children could mean, for example, um, literature which advocates things which children think are important, which, which articulates things which children want said. Or it could be literature for children in the same way that a shotgun is for pigeons. Um, it, it's something that's made, which is then applied to the object in question. Uh, literature, you know, the children are picked up and then put in their literature to make them better. It's an ambiguous thing to write literature for children, um, and you've written about writing literature for children. I wonder if you could open that up for us a little bit. Um, I know that obviously children are bad for books. The pram in the hallway is no good, but <laughs> are books bad for children? Um, I remember as a child discovering the Brothers Grimm. Well, I didn't discover the Brothers Grimm. I did discover Hans Andersen. But I read endless fairy tales. And as a child, I needed fairy tales. What I didn't like was stories about little boys and girls doing boys and girls things like making campfires in woods and going to school and coming back and annoying each other. And um, this was another whole world. It was a sort of world that spread my world immensely. And I read inordinate numbers of fairy stories. Mm. Um, I don't think, it's terrible to say, I don't know what I read them in now, but I had um, things that corresponded to the coloured fairy books, the blue fairy book, the red fairy book, etc. And I've been trying to remember, preparing this dialogue, what I was looking for then. And I was looking for things happening, and in the fairy story, things always happen. And they were better things than annoying the teacher or falling off your horse. They were, they were somehow very important, and quite a lot of them ought to have been terrifying. And if they were written by Hans Andersen, they were terrifying. And if they were collected by the Brothers Grimm... They were just inevitable. It didn't matter. This was how it was, whatever terrible thing happened. And that was a lesson I learned as a child, that there are stories that tell you about death and murder and disappointment. And you say, yes, this is how it is. But it's a bit grim. Um, if I, can te- I can say for, for certain that, um, that, that nobody um, read, no, no child read um, the Brothers Grimm tales in the, in the first edition um, which came out um, in, in 1812, I believe. I need my glasses for this. Yes, the first edition, volume one of the first edition was 1812, and it, they, they gathered 86 stories together, and then volume two came out in 1815, and they gathered another 70 stories. Um, I mention this because they were uh, not in the business of creating children's literature at all. Um, they were in the business of creating a corpus of German stories. Um, they were scholars. Um, they were poor scholars, too. They, they were... Um, they financed themselves at the University of Marburg in the, in the early 19th century. 
and they, uh, they were jobbing writers. Um, so, but they, were, they had scholarly standards. So they, they, they gathered these stories together and they published them over three years um, in, a, in, in, two, in these two volumes. There were, there were apparatuses, there were notes, there were scholarly prefaces, and so on and so forth. There were no illustrations. Um, amazingly, um, the book did not become a bestseller um, in their native Germany. Um, and so they brought out a second edition in which they made a few changes. Um, and then they brought out a third edition in which they made a few more changes. The collections um, metamorphosed as stories went on. They, the stories were gathered in a, in a particular way. I think there's a, um, a general um, sort of idée fixe that uh, fairy stories arise from the, somehow from the ground, like mushrooms, and they grow up and they're simply picked later by folklorists. Um, that wasn't the modus operandi of the Grimm's. They didn't go out into the Black Forest and discover um, small gingerbread cottages and um, horny-handed peasants and then transcribe what they said. A lot of their um, interlocutors were middle class, weren't they? Um, yes. And, um, uh, and some of them, uh, rather strangely, were of Huguenot descent, which meant they were, they were French Protestants. So there was a, a lot of the fairy stories that they gathered weren't actually even German. They were, in fact, French um, that was the mistake they made in their first edition. By the second edition, the French stories had all been booted out again, as if they'd never existed. But in the first edition, you get Puss in Boots, which is a French story which derives from Charles Perrault, I think. Um, and you also get Bluebeard um, as, a, as, a French, as a French fairy tale. Um, in the second edition, it's become Fitcher's Bird. It's exactly the same story. Um, it's exactly the same degree of mayhem and bloodthirstiness, um, but, but it's all very Germanic. Um, so these editions um, went... Um, continued to come out, and they became progressively less unsuccessful. I wouldn't put it higher more than that. Until they brought... Until in... Um, I'm going to have to consult my notes on this one, and I can't find the exact date, but I think about 20 years later, they brought out an edition of about 50 of the stories, which they called the Kleiner Ausgabe, which I think translates literally as the small homework. Am I right? A small... Edition. Thank you. I thought, I thought I couldn't be right. It couldn't be the small homework. Anyway, the small homework, not, um, was much more successful. And from that point on, they started to become um, a collection of stories for children. But that's not how they, that's not how they began. So there was a very, they, were, they were a very mixed bunch to begin with. We had 200 of these stories which were gathered from all sorts of different sources. Some were literary, some were oral. And as a result, many of them, um, let's have, let's, how can I put this politely, some are much more successful than others. The ones that you know, Rapunzel, Cinderella, and so on and so forth, um, they're not representative of every single one in the collection. There are a few duds. And while I was, as I, was, I had to read nearly all of them, in fact, all of them, for this, this evening, I wanted to get my revenge by, by asking Antonia, at least, if, there was, if she had a least favourite tale amongst them. I don't know if I have a least favourite tale. I have a least favourite thing that the Grimms did. Um, that I, I, I don't know, I, I disliked it as a little girl. Some of the stories, the Virgin Mary comes in as a kind of fairy godmother, and it turns it towards religious belief as opposed to whatever kind of belief human beings accord to fairy tales, which is quite different. Um, and there's one, number three actually, which I really hate which is called Our Lady's Child. And Our Lady saves this unfortunate girl who then bears a child 
and our lady requires her to what does she require her to do um, mm. and she won't and so our lady takes the child and takes her off to heaven oh she's become the queen as everybody always does um, she marries the king and she marries the prince and becomes the queen and the prince, like all princes, isn't there when the child is born. And when he comes back, the child has disappeared. And this happens three times because Our Lady has taken these children away to heaven. And the Queen will not say that whatever it was is not true. Yes, I, I can't remember what it was. It was very trivial anyway, wasn't it? It was very trivial. And finally, our heroine, or villain, finds herself on a pyre about to be burnt... Um, our lady having taken away her three children. And so she says, yes, yes, you're right, I confess. Um, whereupon the virgin comes down out of heaven and puts the fire out with a lot of water, and she brings back the three children, and as it's, well, it doesn't actually, but as it implies at the end of this story, they lived happily ever after. Yes, I find this really quite horrible. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's, it is insufferable, isn't it? Um, I, think, I think mine was, there was one, there's a, it's actually a class of, it's a class of stories, and um, there's, there's several of them, and, it's, and usually three objects go on a journey. I mean, it's a rather, it's an unpromising beginning, isn't it? Anyway, my least favourite amongst the, um, that genre was, I think, the straw, the coal, and the bean. Straw, the coal, and the bean go on a journey, and they, find, they come to a stream, and um, the straw lays itself across the, the, the stream, and then the coal makes its way over the straw. But alas, the, the coal, being hot, burns the straw in two, and so the straw falls into the stream and is lost, the, the coal is extinguished, and then the bean laughs so much at their unhappiness that it splits its sides and has to be sewn up by a passing tailor. And I remember, I remember reading it and just thinking to myself, um, corporate training exercise. <laughs> <laughs> if only they'd done it the other way. Anyway. Um, so, that, so there are a few duds, but there's, there's some absolutely wonderful ones. The only, the only problem with the wonderful ones is they're not, they're not quite as they appear. I, th I think we're going to have a think. About, we, can we have a think about Snow White? Um, uh, who's going to start? Should we start with Disney and work back? Or? Um, in Disney, she's a, she's, a, uh, she's a wicked witch in Disney, isn't she? The, the, the stepmother. The stepmother, yeah. Well, or and, mother. And then, and then, then, and then yes. Um, Yes, she's a wicked witch. She looks in her mirror, and the mirror says, "You are the fairest of them all." Yeah. And so she, she, and then it starts saying that Snow White is the fairest of them all. So then Snow White is taken to the forest to be killed, mm. and at that point, the killer releases her. The substitution is made, and it, and then then, but it's not the stepmother, is it? I think in the original. Um, in the original version, it's, um, it, it's her mother. It's her mother. Um, which puts a rather different cast on it. And um, the, the Grimm's, in fact, when they rewrote their stories, because they suddenly realised they were very popular, they substituted stepmothers for mothers all the way through. I mean, this, this story has a particular pattern. Um, mm. The mother wants to get rid of the daughter. Um, Sigmund Freud was very interested in the stories of the Brothers Grimm. And um, there is this pattern of competition between mother and daughter, or between father and son, and the daughter wishes to marry the father, 
and get rid of the mother. Yes. And all of this in some of the early stories appears as part of the story. Yes. I mean, I'm quite interested thinking about this. What does one think as a very small child coming across this particular little loop? Yes, I mean, that, that, I mean, that oh, is yeah. interesting. Someone, point, some, someone pointed out, but I don't think it, it, it excuses it, that stepmothers, of course, would have been a much more common phenomenon then because of the hazards of childbirth. Yes, Marina Warner has written very well about this and says that, um, you know, the, the wicked stepmother is not just a creation in order to mm. hide the fact that actually it was a hateful mother. She would socially have existed because most many women simply died in childbirth and died in childbirth yeah, yeah. and were replaced by other mothers. And the fate of the eldest child, Cinderella, yeah. who was yeah. put by the hearth and taken from her natural position, happened to all sorts of people. Mm. But it doesn't feel like that. No, I don't think When you're reading it, it feels like a kind of archetypal pattern that when you've met it, you think, oh, by God, yes. Well, you don't even think this is the nature of things. You think that I need to know this. I remember as a child, I, I remember almost, I remember, I'm reconstructing my memories, but I remember thinking oh, God, yes, this could be, and I shall take it on board, because you can take it on board if it's in a fairy story that mm. somebody might be hated by their mother. Yes. I think Betty Davis said you're not a parent... You haven't been a parent unless you've been hated by your children. <laughs> um, we'll give her a couple of hundred years and there'll be a fairy story about her. Um, uh, there's, a, there's a darker reality under, these, which, under, under that, of course, which, which is which I would just want to unearth by asking the question, over whom are they competing, these two women, these, this daughter and this, and this mother? There's only one answer to that question. Well, they're competing for the father. Mm. And an enormous number of, not only the Grimm's fairy stories, but many fairy stories are about... It's mostly the father who wishes to marry the daughter. And in the French fairy stories, the daughter usually has a godmother or fairy godmother who helps her to set problems to the father. You know, I won't marry you unless mm. you yeah. Um, yeah. kill the donkey which lays golden shit. Eggs. Yes, 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 yeah, that's good. Yeah. <laughs> you wouldn't state. do that, would you? No, no, no but she does. <laughs> yeah. And then she's stuck. Yeah. So in the end, she goes out, and this is the grim version, she goes out in her cloak made, made of all kinds of fur and makes herself look ugly and becomes a serpent. Servant in somebody's house. It's a thousand furs. A thousand yes, furs, yes. 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 And um, when she has done this, in the end, she manages to throw off her disguise by sending the prince very beautiful things in a dish. And she has taken with her her three beautiful dresses. Yeah. Um, and all this again, if you read it as a child, and I don't know how many of you can put your mind back to meeting these stories if indeed you did meet them. But you have a sort of sense of discovering an order, a discovering an inevitability you would rather not have discovered. And yet in that form, it's acceptable. Um, 
And, and that is very interesting. And it's not true, I'm, I'm jumping the gun a bit, but you don't get that feeling with Hans Andersen at all. It's only with old folk stories mm-hmm. like the Grimm's. There's, um, there's, there's one called the, the, the Girl with No Hands, which is particularly unpleasant. Um, it, I think it was unpleasant in its original incarnation, and, it's now, and, and after the, the Grimm's got their hands on it, forgive me, um, uh, it's become unpleasant and nonsensical. There's a girl, and, um, and she has some sort of argument with her father, then cuts off her hands and, um, and goes on a journey and eventually marries a prince. There's no motivation for going on the journey at all, um, the cutting off of the hands after a slight argument with your father seems a bit de trop. Um, and then, and the re- and the re- and the, the, the real story, which which we know because um, the Grimm brothers—I should have mentioned this earlier—the Grimm brothers um, gave all their manuscripts, their, their transcriptions of these oral stories, which they took down, gave them all to Brentano, who was um, a, folk- a folklorist and thinker at the time, and a kind of mentor. Um, and, and, um, and they were very wise to do that um, because Brentano just left them lying around. If you ever want to um, have a manuscript preserved for posterity, for God's sake, don't put it in the library or anything like that. Just leave it lying around and it'll get through. It's the libraries that burn to the ground and get flooded and so on and so forth. So we have these things. He just left it lying around and it was discovered um, in a Trappist monastery in the 1920s. Um, and, we, and there, if you want to go to the Trappist monastery or even to the edition which was made of that manuscript, you can see that the girl with no hands, this was coming back, um, the girl with no hands um, has, been, has um, actually been propositioned by her father um, and, and turned him down, at which point in the original manuscript he cuts off her breasts and then is propositioned again and then she, he cuts off her hands and then in desperation she flees. So that's been, exci- so that is, that's been excised. from. So some of these tales do, um, as, you, as, as Dame Antonia was saying, um, do go to the sort of very depths of this, um, f- I suppose, folkloric fear, in, uh, perhaps. And our, they're not folkloric fears, it's our fears. It's, it, our fears. it's very interesting, um, because the Grimm brothers, I was corrected by an old friend when I wrote this in public somewhere, but the Grimm brothers were proscribed in Germany after mm. the Second World War because it, the British and the Americans felt that they represented something completely horrible about Germans, that they wanted to torture and kill people. They only slowly got back to being allowed to be read, let alone taught hmm. in schools. Um, I, As I said, I think, before, I, as a child, the cruelty in the Grimm's... I, ha- I didn't know that version that you just said... Hmm. But there is always the woman with her hands cut off. She's often put in a boat and put out to sail on the sea. And the Virgin Mary tends to appear and put her hands back on for her. And then she's all right. And you get this sort of paragraph at the end where the wicked person is put in a barrel with burning oil and nails sticking out of the barrel and is rolled out to sea. And this usually only happens in one sentence. And you're meant to feel this is perfectly satisfactory. The good are happy, got their hands back and are going to get married. And the evil people have sent to sea in a barrel and serve them right. And I don't think the child I was ever thought this was serving them right. I felt you ought not to do that. But at the same time, somewhere in me, something recognised the shape of that story, that it was a story that demanded that the good should be happy 
and the bad should be really badly punished. And at some level that was satisfactory. Um, you, you weren't afraid reading the Grimm's, mm. mostly, although they were horrible. They were horrible. They, they, they were made more horrible. The Grimm's, the Grimm's um, dumbed down all the sex, didn't they, really? And, and, they, and they upped the punishment quota. I can, you can understand why there was a sort of excess of Germanizing thoughts after the war. Um, I think the, 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 the poor stepmother in Snow White, poor put-upon stepmother, um, in, in the Grimm's version ends up with, is it red-hot slippers? Red-hot Iron boots, yes. Iron boots, and then dances herself to death. And, and she dances herself to death. And again, thinking of Anderson, he turned that into something much worse. But it's much worse in Anderson, yeah. It's, 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 uh, the because he kitsch. engages your imagination, whereas folklore stories engage something other. They, you don't need to enter them. I think I knew that again from being very little. You don't have to go into them, you just read the story. Mm-hmm. It's the story that's satisfactory. Um, so there's, there's a lot of textual camouflage that the, the, the Grimm's put on these, on these stories. Um, and I, and part, of, part of it was, was, joking aside, to make them um, more German. I, I, that for, uh, I think almost until the end of their lives, this for them was a serious project, a serious way to to garner a, a corpus of German stories. Um, I, can, I, can, I think I can... Uh, make the point just by listing some of their other works, and you can see the common denominator. Um, they brought out a book called Deutsche Grammatik, um, which was basically the beginning of comparative philology, the study of languages. Um, it is not, it's not read anymore because its conclusions have been so fully um, sunken into modern philology, and also it's 3,845 pages long. Um, they followed that up with Deutsche Mythologie, which is a four-volume collection of Mythology, and then their, their crowning glory was the Deutsche Wörterbuch. Um, you're seeing the common denominator here. It's Deutsche, um, which is. Um, um, and at the time that they were working, um, this was um, a, a, a quite a daring gesture because, of course, there was no Deutsche. I mean, Germany had yet to come into existence. This was a this was a political gesture. So I suppose that after this ban after the war had that um, going going for it as well. Um, anyway, they, um, they, they massaged these stories into the shape that they wanted them to be to a certain extent, but they are still there. They are still here and available for us. And under that textual camouflage is the world that they describe. And it's a, it's a, it's a frightening world, isn't it? And in, the one, in the stories which are some of the slightly less well-known stories, but which were lauded when they came out, um, it's, I, went, I think where that shines through. Are we going to talk about the juniper tree? Is it, does any, do, I don't want to do a show of hands, maybe a bit of a nod. Juniper tree, does that ring any bells around the room? Not really? Yeah, yes, no. some. I mean, it's, it's absolutely central to the collection, wouldn't you say? Yes, it is. And, um, shall, shall I summarise it, or do you want to do you it? You summarise oh. it. Uh, okay, so you, you, have a, you have a mother. <laughs> of course yeah. you do. And she wishes for a child as red as blood and as white as snow. Um, she gives birth um, beneath the juniper tree. She, she asks for this child when she's beneath the juniper tree, and she um, she she um, swells with the with the juniper tree's progress through the seasons, and she gorges on juniper berries, and she swells and swells, and then gives birth to a boy and dies of happiness. So, <laughs> the end. No, it's not the end. <laughs> um, the father remarries. Who'd have thought it? He remarries, so the boy has a stepmother. Um, the, the stepmother and the father um, have a daughter, 
The stepmother loves the daughter who is hers, but persecutes the boy from the first marriage. Um, um, she slaps, pinches, nasty stuff. Um, and then finally, she chops off his head by slamming down the lid of an apple chest. She then blames her daughter for this crime. She manages to put his head back on <laughs> and sort of stick it on so that when her daughter comes along and tries to give him something, his head falls off. I think could... first she says, oh, he doesn't look very well. Yes, she does. <laughs> yes, she does. And, um... <laughs> Sh- shall I... So, no, you go on. Right, um... I can... yeah. <laughs> OK. Um, so, she, um, so she blames her daughter, and then, then to, to, to hide the crime or get rid of the body, um, she, instead of just burying the poor boy, she cooks him and serves his flesh to his father. Yeah, that's not nice, is it? Um, luckily, the daughter, who has in, the, in this version has a name, it's rare in fairy stories, for, um, it's Marlena, she's called Marlena. Luckily, Marlena gathers the bones together um, and, and, gather, and she gathers them again under the juniper tree. We're going to have to come back to the juniper tree. Um, um, I told this story to my, my son just before I came out, and he said, so, so where's the tree in all this? And I said, oh, it's symbolic, you know, and, but you're, uh, you're going to do better than that, I know. Um, and the, the juniper tree um, <coughs> creates a kind of reverse phoenix, doesn't it? It bursts into flame, and a, and a bird rises up, gathers up the bones, which are in a silk bag or something, and then goes off round the world on, on a series of travels, singing of the crime which has been committed on the bones. Um, first of all, it goes to, I, can't, I think it goes to a goldsmith and it gets a gold chain. Secondly, it goes to a cobbler and gets, anyone? No? A pair of shoes. And, um, and thirdly, it goes to a group of 20 millers who are, um, no, he doesn't get any flour, it's a millstone. It's a bird picks up a whole millstone. Yes, this is where my imagination wouldn't go with the Grimms. Mm. I couldn't see a bird of paradise carrying a millstone, <laughs> no matter how hard I tried. But anyway, it does. <laughs> the illustrations are quite problematic. Um, it returns to the house and the juniper tree, um, where it um, uh, sing, sings its song again to the dread of the stepmother, who knows, of course, exactly what it means. Um, it drops the gold chain on... I think it's the father. I think the father gets the gold chain. Um, the daughter gets the slippers, and the stepmother gets... Yeah, that's right. The stepmother gets the millstone. Um, splat. And that's the end, isn't it? No, well, no, every, no, no, no. Everybody's no. very happy. Everybody's very happy afterwards. They, um, they all live together in total calm and yeah. happiness. Uh, forever. I mean, this word forever. Forever. So, a, a fairy story ends, and then the status quo is forever. Everybody's going to be happy forever and forever. Yeah, the lake is completely flat afterwards. I remember when I was working on Breton fairy stories, and I was talking to a Breton fairy story expert, and he said um, these stories were told at night in a darkness you can't now imagine Mm. because there was no lighting except the fire in the room in which the stories were being told. And it has that kind I think all these endings feel different in there because they are horrible and yet reassuring. Hmm. You, know, you know that the good will be good and do well and live happily ever after and the bad will be smashed up and live, will not live after, ever after, no, no, be dead ever after. And this is sort of comforting in the dark because it makes in your brain a kind of rhythm of it's going to be all right, it's going to be all right. You don't ever think 
this story is going to be not all right, although some of them are not all right. Yes, we will we will come to that. Um, that I think at a certain later, it's going to be a low point. I'll tell you now, um, <clears throat> but we will come to that. Um, a lot of I, I mean, I was I was reading these stories, and I I, noticed, I, I, I suppose it's an obvious point to make, but. but I mean, the, the women hated each other. hated each other so frequently. I mean, there's the mother-daughter opposition. Um, it's, it always seems to be generational. I, I, I see. Even it's fathers, sons. It's, it's one, to, one to the next. Is, is there a sort of buried narrative of succession there? Do you think? Or, um, I'm not sure if I'm barking up the wrong tree. Well, there's a buried narrative of identification, um, and on the whole the readers of the stories would not be identifying with the father. No. It's, or the it's mother. It's always the child. Yes. It's always the child, even though they're not children's stories. Mm. But it is the sort of way of going on, the way of succeeding, the way of living. Yeah. And they must have all been living, the people who first told the stories, in a world where people died easily and quickly. And you had to sort of say, oh, yes, this is how it is. There's a terrible story of the, uh, in here of the mother with two daughters. And they have nothing to eat because they're poor and she has no husband. And they have um, two pieces of bread which they divide between the three of them. And it isn't enough. And then they get hungrier and hungrier. And she, one of the daughters says she'll go out and get something, and she gets one piece of bread, which they divide between them. And then the mother says, it's no good, I'm going to have to kill you and eat you, because we can't go on. And the children say, oh, don't do that, we will lie down and go to sleep and never wake up, which is what they do. So the children are not in the way. You are never told how the mother managed to subsist. <laughs> it's a totally unsatisfactory story. Um, Except that, again, the imagination sort of engages with what on earth this family was doing. And the, the, the sort of residue of truthfulness in it, of families where there is no food, which start a lot of the stories. They, they go out in the wood to get food. Hansel and Gretel is one of those stories. Yes. Um, I think Calvino, I just, Calvino said, I mean, every tale... Um, tends to absorb something of the place where it is narrated. I mean, we could say time as well, couldn't we? I mean, I'm yes. sure he would agree with that. Um, and I, I do wonder, I, do, I suppose one of the fears that I had when I was reading these stories was that they might not be fairy tales, that at some level they reflect a historical reality. Um, when I was reading the, um, the girl who cut off the hands with the, the cutting off her breast and all this sort of thing, I, I, thought, I thought of the Thirty Years' War in which things like that were done and publicised. And I, yeah. I mean, I might well be... There's no way to prove it. I might well be wrong. But I wondered if that was, that was a, a kind of ghost narrative behind... Not the ghost narrative, a real narrative behind real these... Narrative. these, these, these and but how do you deal with how do you deal with a history like that? Um, one way would be to you, you tell of it, I suppose, but you might, you can't tell of it unbearably. You must tell of it bearably. I, um, I'm, I'm fishing around. You tell it satisfactorily, which is why these endings appear to be why, as a child, I could read, you know, being put in a barrel with hot red hot iron shoes 
and rolled into the sea to drown. I, I read that and I thought, yes, within this story, that mm. is what would have happened. Yeah. Um, I, I didn't... They, they, they never bothered me. I, I know people who won't let their children read the Grimm's. Mm-hmm. Or I, I knew an American couple who visited us in France. And they said they wouldn't, they wouldn't let them anywhere near Christianity either. So <laughs> they, they just thought most of the stories people are brought up on are bad. But I think there is a body of people who think children should not be given the Grimm's. Hmm. Um, it's, it's a point of view, I suppose, you have to respect up to a point. Yeah. Um, there's, uh, I, I, was all, I was struck, too, by the number of journeys, that, uh, forced journeys, that people took. Um, and I wondered, about, I wondered about two things with that. I wondered about the reality behind it, people forced on the road because of hunger, um, because of the need to get work. And then I thought about the reception of these stories later. Um, I mean, we live in a century where we live in um, with the memory of our recent century in which unprecedented numbers of people have been forced onto roads in one way or another and forced to go somewhere where they don't want to go. Um, in, this, in this country, um, uh, that, that has also happened, although it's a story which has not been told much told, but you have told, you have told it in, in various ways, and I'm going to allude to one of them now, which is that the, ev- the evacuation of children took place. Um, and uh, and I, I read, I mean, I, my, my mother was evacuated and, um, and, and, and hated it. Um, you weren't evacuated, but you were forced to leave and go somewhere else. Um, and you've, you've I'm, I'm moving on to your work now because you have investigated these stories through writing other stories. The one that I'm alluding to is called, and I'm going to actually, it's called The Thing in the Forest. And it begins, there were once two little girls who saw or believed they saw a thing in a forest. The two little girls are evacuees. Um, they're, rather, they're rather lovely, amoral, tough little girls who leave behind another little girl. I'm not going to tell you anymore. You have to read it for yourselves. Um, and, but I, I, will give, I will give away the ending. This is the ending. The ending is, there were once two little girls who saw or believed they saw a thing in a forest. Okay, so that's the ending scene. Um, but that, that, that experience of the, the, the evacuees experience, I know it wasn't exactly your experience, but it's, it chimes with a, a theme in these stories, doesn't it? Of, of, of being forced to go somewhere, being forced on a journey, um, being forced into a story that's not your story. Yes, being in a, a different place. Um, if you talk to German people, and you say, of course, there is the German forest. Almost all of them look extremely happy immediately. <laughs> um, the forest means a great deal in German writing. Um, my two little girls went into an English wood, and they met a terrible monster, which was created of all sorts of dreadful things like um, decaying dishcloths, yeah, which was one of the terrors of my childhood. And... Um, <laughs> <laughs> and sort of smelly things and it looked as though it was about to disintegrate but it was immensely long and it went coiling on and on and coming through the wood producing this dreadful smell and this dreadful noise and also the, the horrible hairball like things that it, the sort of capsule like hairballs as if it's brought them up which are there decades later they don't seem to compost down at all no it is it is highly unpleasant it is, a, it is a metaphor for something I know what it is, and I'm not going to tell you, um, but it is from my wartime childhood. <laughs> and it is, it is a kind of solidification 
of, um, of something that really distressed me when I was little. It was such fun writing it. There's a cathartic... Um, there is a cathartic function to um, fairy stories, I, I suppose. I mean, particularly in composing them. Um, th this body of work is... It's, I was going to say it's usable. Um, it's been retold by many people. You're... you're you're not so much a, a reteller, though. The, the closest you came is, I think, in a story called The Eldest Princess, which I'd like to talk about, and I'm going to read a little bit of it, if I may. Um, or, or I suppose it's yours. You should... No, you no can I do it? Yeah, you yeah, read can. I'll read the uh, horrible story. Eventually. Yeah, yeah, OK, great. You've got that. Um, OK, so this, is, this is, um, so this is called The Story of the, the, story of the Eldest Princess. Um, um, and, it's the, and in this story, there are... Um, <coughs> Uh, we, you'll probably guess the number of princesses that there are. It's less than four. Okay, and the, the eldest prince, and the, the kingdom is in trouble because the because the sky has turned, its, it's colour has turned green. Um, um, they obviously haven't read enough Paul Eluard, but um, and um, and uh, and they so the, so the eldest princess is co-opted to do something about it, and um, and they, they they go out and they, they and 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 consult various people. Um, and this, this, is, this is part of the consultation. The witches and wizards, on the whole, favoured a quest. One rather powerful and generally taciturn wizard, who had interfered very little, but always successfully in affairs of state, came out of his cavern and said that someone must be sent along the road, that's a capital R road, through the forest, across the desert, and into the mountains to fetch back the single silver bird and her nest of ash branches. The bird, he added, was kept in the walled garden of the old man of the mountains, where she sipped from the crystal fountain of life and was guarded by a thicket of thorns, poisonous thorns, and an interlaced ring of venomous fiery snakes. He believed that advice could be sought along the way about how to elude their vigilance, but the only advice he could give was to keep to the road and stray neither in the forest nor in the desert, nor in the rocky paths and always to be courteous. Then he went back to his cavern. Um, you don't actually have the gingerbread cabin in there, but you have almost every other element that you can possibly have in a fairy story. Um, it's, it's good advice. Um, she doesn't take it, of course. Well, she knows something about the shape of fairy stories. Um, which is that the eldest princess will go out and get turned into jelly or turned into a stone or turned into a beetle. And the second princess will go out having learnt nothing from the fate of the eldest <laughs> princess and will be turned into a stone or a beetle or a statue at the gate of the... And then the third princess will go out and rescue everybody. And she knows this is the story, so she keeps going along the road. And she thinks, what the hell... I am not going along this road, I am going off this road. And she walks off into the forest, where she rescues various animals in a totally fairy story way, and comes to a hut with an old woman who tells stories, who is in the hut. So she sits in the hut with the... And she's perfectly happy. Um, and the second sister goes out and triumphantly fetches back the bird, and the sky changes colour... And the third sister doesn't know what the hell to do because her story has gone away. Um, so she's wandering very crossly around the garden 
and meets an old lady who says, I will give you, what is it? There are four presents she might give her. No, there are, yes. Um, um, one is a golden something, and I can't remember, no. but they're, they're absolutely typical presents you might be given in a fairy story. And then she says, or I can give you the end of a thread. Oh, yes, yeah, that's right, um, which is not so typical. And the third princess thinks a bit and says she would like the thread. So she's given the end of the thread, which she follows out into the world, which is, of course, another story. And it ends with the story. It's, like, it's, it's actually it's a very useful story. I can recommend it to you, because if you ever get caught in a fairy tale, it's this sort of manual of how to escape from the damn thing. Um, <clears throat> I should say, I am the eldest of three sisters. <laughs> I was a um, I should also say that when I tried to tell my, this story to the third sister who I thought might be rather pleased that the third sister is really the best sister. She just said, I'm not having any of that. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I think, you know, the three princesses story is a real reflection of the way your life is shaped by your position in a family. Yes. I mean, it is, it is like falling into a structure that's not your own. And then, yeah. and then what do you do? Um, uh, the... It's, um, you, you've also, I mean, you've also used the material. I mean, it's throughout your, I mean, we've only taken two examples. If we went through all of your work and how you've used it, we will be here for hours and hours and hours and hours. That would be fun, but we haven't got time. Um, um, but I, I just wanted to make the point that for, for writers now, for you in particular, this material is usable. Um, you can be both in that in that story. You cannot write that story without being both inside it and outside it. The fairy tale is believable as a fairy tale. At the same time, it couldn't have been written unless someone was on the outside of it constructing the thing. And, the, and both those points of view are available in the story, which is what makes it, which is a particular double pleasure. That's a modern thing, isn't it? And there's, but other, others have done it. Angela Carter did it, um, but she did it in a slightly different way and took a different view. I think. Yes, and Angela Carter's. Angela Carter was a, a great influence on me because she said in the 1970s that everybody was trying to re write realist novels about people in families in places and that she had realised that fairy stories were actually more exciting and the structure and narrative of fairy stories was more exciting. And so she started to write stories and they were absolutely brilliant and hers tended to be about you know very dangerous wolves or bluebeard they were quite horrible and very gleeful and they had a huge influence on me and then she edited which I will offer you to think about because I, I still don't know what to think about it but she edited the Virago book of fairy tales which were a huge collection of fairy tales about women for women from all sorts of cultures. And then in her introduction, there's a paragraph saying how she read and read all these stories again and again as a child and didn't like realist stories about children, which is very much how I was, apart from Swallows and Amazons, which I did like. But um, she then said, but coming to them again, I think people perhaps grow out of them I am not sure I have not grown out of them. Um, and this, was, this shocked me when I first read it. And I think there is a sense in which my sense of them as an absolutely essential part of the way I write has slightly slipped. I haven't grown out of them. 
I go back and read them, and I read the ones I hate, and I read the ones I love, um, and I read horrible Hans Anderson, who is absolutely marvellous. But I don't have this polemical sense about them. Perhaps that's what it is. Mm. I don't feel any desire anymore to push them to the front of my consciousness and say, this is more important than novels about education and learning and real wars. Mm. And I found now that in my old age I can write about Europe and have stories that take place in Vienna and Germany and France and England and... The fairy stories are creeping along underneath, but it's um, it's different. Pleasures change. I mean, the the, um, the, the pleasurableness of, of fairy stories changes changes too. Um, we we do take pleasure in them, even though they're awf- often awful. Um, and but sometimes, rarely, um, they go to places which it's impossible to, it's impossible to take pleasure, and they they reflect a reality which is. Um, it's beyond categories like that. Um, when we were, we, were, we were reading through these stories and, and chatting by email to each other, but Antonia's lived with them for much, for much longer and has a much more intimate engagement with them. And I have this huge volume in front of me, which she helped, uh, informally helped to edit, and, um, and I wrote the introduction to. At the back of it, there are the stories, there are a, cl- a small collection of stories which are... Um, uh, banned from any normal collection, um, and, and perhaps rightly, I, I would say. Well, some of them are anti-Semitic. I mean, we won't linger on that, but... No, I mean, we could But the Grimms it. do have yes. a certain anti-Jewish structure. They, they, yes. They don't have good Jewish characters. No, there are no, no, uh, no good And Jewish they tend characters. to come to bad ends. Yeah, and they certainly do. There's a, ven- there's a vengeful tale there. And then there's a, there's a, there's a cold and... Um, I think I think we could just read it yeah. and and then and then go from there and then we're going to move up again into into sunnier climes after this one. But this is um, shall I get it out? This is a story called The Stubborn Child, <clears throat> which pulled me up short when yeah. I first read it. There once lived a stubborn child, and he never did what his mother told him to do. Um, I should perhaps say that in German, he is in a neuter sex, which we don't have, so you don't know if it was a boy or a girl, but this, the English version makes it a boy. And so our dear Lord did not look kindly on him and let him become ill. Doctors could not cure him, and before long he was lying on his deathbed. His coffin was being lowered into the grave, and they were about to cover it with earth, when suddenly one of his little arms emerged and reached up into the air. They pushed it back in again and covered the coffin with more earth, but it was no use. The little arm kept reaching out of the grave. Finally, his mother had to go to the grave and strike the arm with a switch. After she did that, the arm withdrew and the child finally began to rest in peace beneath the earth. What do you make of that? (laughs) I mean, it's, it's unanswerable, isn't it? It's yeah. an unanswerable tale. Um, and who, who first thought it up? And... Can, I, can I just write what you wrote in the, in the introduction? You, you, I, um, there's an introduction to this which Antonia wrote, and in it she wrote about this story and she said, it feels like a glimpse of the dreadful side of the nature of things. And, um, and that's what 
the, I, I thought that was right. I, it, it, suddenly, this, this, some, sometimes a window opens on a world which seems to operate according to a code which does not include us somehow. It does not, it, it's not our code or, or anything that we would think or any pleasure that we would take. Um, I'd like to. I'm going to finish up with a couple of questions, and then we should have some. Then your questions, I think. Um, um, I'd like to sort of finish up with trying to, to ask what what fairy tales are for. We've we've had a go at this. Um, we are here. We are where we are in the in the 21st century, um, and fairy tales are still being written. You've written some recently. Um, other people do it. They're st they're still very popular. Um, what function are they? Are they fulfilling now, do you think? Um, it, to, to kick, should, I, if I, should I kick off a little bit? Um, there's, um, I thought about Bluebeard, the Bluebeard story, which is, the Bluebeard version is not in, in Grimm, but the Fitcher's Bird version of the same story is. And I thought to myself, oh, it's a, it's a moral tale. Angela Carter told this one, as the, I think, as the bloody chamber. Um, you, you'll know it, just in case someone doesn't. Um, Bluebeard, let's stay, stay with Bluebeard, shall we? Bluebeard um, marries um, his latest bride, um, goes hunting, says, um, you, you have the run of the castle, latest bride. Um, go into any room you like, any room at all, except the one at the top of the winding staircase with the interesting-looking small door to which this key turns the lock. Um, and... <laughs> Um, uh, up she goes, and, uh, and there finds, of, of course, her the dismembered and partially eaten bodies of her predecessors. I can't remember if they were eaten as well. Um, I, and I, I had two. I, it always. Um, I had two questions about this story. Always, one was, um, what did the first bride see? <laughs> it's probably, it must have been empty room, mustn't it? So there wouldn't be anything to be worried about. Anyway, um, but that, never mind about that. Um, but the second, the second was the, the moral of this tale. The moral of this tale clearly. Um, is don't be curious into, you know, into matters which don't concern you. Don't be overly curious. That appalling female sin that, that many women have. They're curious, curious, always prying into things, looking into things, opening things up, looking at handbags. Um, the moral of the tale is not don't dismember young women and eat them. <laughs> so we all accept that, don't we? So, so I don't think these were ever moral tales, really. It's, it's, it's what's underneath that. Yes, they were, they were tales about <laughs> the nature of things. They were tales about what would happen. Um, I, I have a sort of ineluctable feeling when you read them. But whilst you know that a lot of the women are going to end up my view of it was always that the sisters were only the latest in a succession and there were already a lot of bloody pieces of women in the room when the first sister went in. But um, equally, if you're quite comfortable, because you know the third sister will solve it. Mm. And in fact, when the third sister doesn't go into the room, the man becomes subject to her and she can tell him to do anything she likes. Yes, 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 yes. And so they all go... She, she puts the sisters together again and they get in a in a cart, yeah. and he drives them back home. And every time he says he might stop, one of the sisters cries out, no, no, go on, go on, and he <laughs> thinks it's his wife looking at him from a window. Yes, yes, yes. So it's a power structure which changes. And it does actually have an ordinary moral story, really, which is don't break rules and then you'll have power. Yeah. But it's not a very good moral. No. Uh, it's not why we read it, is it? No, no. no. But it, it is, it's one of the more exciting stories. It is. It is indeed. Um, I, th I think we're 
we're out of chatting time. We, we yeah. could chat more, but we're out of chatting time, and, and it's, it's, it's audience participation time. If anyone would like to sing a song... <laughs> um, it's, uh, if anyone has a, if anyone, if we've raised anything that would um, is is worthy of a question, I know the, t- the first one is always tough. Um. Um, the, the male characters are often sort of very pa- they're passive in a way. It's it, in these dynamics of the women fighting around the sort of presumably more powerful king figures or father figures. In, the, in fairy tales? I think... Um, uh, I had a very good thought and have lost it. I, I think they appear to be passive and at the same time they appear to hold the power. Um, and what, what the Breton people, when I was working on Breton fairy stories used to say was that this was because all the stories were in fact told by women Mm -hmm. Um, and women would tell the stories by the fire and so it would look as though the men held the power but in the end it would turn out that the women did and I I find that quite satisfactory I think that works Um, I had another thought which I've lost Um, I, I think some of it is sentimental as well, I mean that's 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 the strong. I think that's the strong answer. But I think there's a, I mean th- these are these these tales are the products of very mixed narrative modes. I mean mm-hmm. some of them good, some of them not so good. And I, th- I think there's some sentimentality there as well. I mean the sort of Renoir esque infant, um, the helpless child. Um, I mean that's a that's a narrative strategy that works, whether it's a, a sort of good one or not. There was a a period, a sort of. Angela Carter period, but she wasn't exactly doing it, when the feminists' movement decided that the stories were bad because the women were victims. And so they started rewriting them, just simply reversing the plot and turning the women into heroes. And I haven't read one that worked. And Angela rightly said... um, you don't need to do this because of the enormous number of powerful women in the stories. It's, they're not just stories about women as victims. You just need to, if you want to be feminist, you choose the stories where the princess resourcefully, after all sorts of travels around the world and talking to the sun and the moon, rescues the prince from the witch or from the second bride he has stupidly been persuaded to accept. And I think that's right. I think... Uh, that leads on to another thing, which is I think you can't mess with them too much. You must, you must respect the form, even if the form's weird. Um, and I, I really dislike those moralising mm-hmm. feminist stories. I felt they were doing damage to women. I have more um, to ask you an opinion about the suggestion or a thought I had about um, the notion of inevitability that you mentioned before and about the relationship of your narrative and fairy tales, maybe, fairy stories. Because I had the impression that maybe in fairy tales, this inevitability lies more in the purpose or in the ending, in the, like, forever, in the, end, in the forever thing. While your narrations are, your narratives are more, uh, they often cut off, cut off this ending part, and maybe they are, maybe more narrative that are um, pushed forward rather than pulled forward. So fairy tales have a starting 
they take the ending as a starting point and they pulled the whole story towards it, towards it while your stories are more like they set a, a starting point and they are pushed forward from that. But the ending point is not that important somehow. So I was just wondering, so where your inevitabilities that I perceive in your narrative lies, if you can... Like, um, this is a very interesting question. Um, and it varies. Um, most of the novels I write, most of the sort of novels I write set in my own time... Um, start from a beginning and then I see what the beginning would cause in the real world and what the relationships of the characters might cause, always allowing for accidents. I mean, people die suddenly. And when I wrote a novel called Still Life, I started with the idea that somebody would die and that the reader would absolutely not be expecting anyone to die. So it had to be a terrible shock. And I've had all sorts of letters from people who said I was reading this in the bath. And when I got to that, I simply threw it under the water um, because it made me so unhappy, so it worked. But um, when I wrote Possession, I started writing it about a story about discovering heaps of ancient letters. And I suddenly realised that the actual structure of a detective story is quite different. You, and I found you have to start with the end and work backwards. And you have to have the whole story before you can write any of it. It can't just develop. Um, and I found I needed all sorts of technical things. The people found the hidden letters from the Victorian characters. And that was fine, but my narrative required them not to have found all the letters. So I needed to invent a whole series of events where they found more letters. This is totally artificial. And the result was that um, when writing Possession, which was a detective story, I was not inside the book with my own feelings really very much. I was just reading it like a reader. Whereas with the more realistic novels, I, I would feel them out. Um, equally, because of fairy stories, when I, when I was a young writer, there was an immense fashion for endings which weren't endings. Um, I think of Rosamund Lehman. What's the, what's the famous Lehman? The Cambridge Lehman, where the, the main character works her way through all the young men she knew in her girlhood. And then she's left in a cafe in Cambridge with everything to come. And that was very fashionable. Everybody was doing it. And it struck me fairly recently that the ending of a novel that is an ending has a perfect right to exist as Dickens's endings existed. It's not unreal. It's just different. So when I wrote um, the children's book, I wrote in a whole series of endings that were like Victorian endings or fairy tale endings and actually did end things for people. And it was artificial. And I thought, I have a right to this. If I want to do that, I will do it. Um, and I was talking to Iris Murdoch, who was gaily saying, you can do whatever you like, you know, anybody can do whatever they like. And I found that rather encouraging. But if you look at the books, the endings are constructed differently, I think, some from the others. 
This isn't really a question, but um, I, I remember reading to my five-year-old daughter, um, Snow White, and the bit about the Wicked Queen having to dance in red-hot iron slippers. And I said, but that's dreadful. To which she replied, she was the Wicked Queen. So I think very often children don't, um, how should I say, put themselves, <laughs> rather appropriate, put themselves in the shoes of someone else. <laughs> and um, it seems quite just. It seems that the wicked get punished. I don't know at what age a child is horrified by talk of suffering and so on. Yes, that, that's very interesting. Yeah. Um, there's somebody here who perhaps does know. The other, thing I want, the other thing I wanted to say was, do you know the book um, The Uses of Fantasy by Bruno, Bruno Bettelheim? Backwards, yes. Lovely, yes, that's all right. <laughs> so, no, I, I was a teacher, and I, I taught young children and special needs, and I worked a lot with stories, and... I'd told a lot of fairy stories. And what children liked about that was it gave them a framework. Um, and although they couldn't write a lot of them, we talked and made up the stories. And they had a framework in which they could play out a lot of the things that they were afraid of or they liked within their own lives. But it was separate from them. And they knew... I mean, some of the children were, were children who been in dreadful war zones and heaven knows what and within the story they because it was to them a fairy story they could play out their fantasies their fears and organize the ending the way they wanted whereas they knew it wasn't life but it was a way a framework that they could work within and and feel secure do you understand yes yes <laughs> yeah. it's um, it... And very often with adults, it's a similar thing. It, it's a way of having a world which isn't real, but that you can organise to your own, you know, the, the, the wicked get punished. And the wicked are wicked and yes, not complicated. And wicked, yes, and, I mean, and children no don't, they don't get upset by it when they're little because it is something that they see it isn't real but it's a way of playing out things that they don't yet quite understand. But it gives them power to deal with it. I think this is, I think this is exactly right. And hmm? Sorry, no, no, um, I, sorry, I was just about to say that all children are somewhere to the right of Attila the Hun. In my, yeah. do, do they deserve them? They all want to bring back capital punishment for parking in the wrong place and stuff like that. A... I was just thinking about um, your story, The Glass Coffin, um, and an image in that that's always stayed with me, I think it's that one, where um, a man uh, goes off on an adventure and he's told that he has to be carried by the wind. And if he fights the wind when it picks him up, then he will fall to his demise. And if he allows himself to be carried, then he'll be taken to his destiny. And, of course, he does, and then lots of lovely things happen to him. But um, that's always stuck with me, and I was thinking about that and what you said about forests being very important to the German fairy tales and how... Nature has this incredible force in, in stories, the natural world. And I was sort of just wondering what your thoughts were on that and why you, if you think it's, that is important and maybe why. You could talk about the, cl the clouds, the clouds at the beginning of the elder, elder sister. I mean, um, 
It's, it's oh, the mean. sky, the yeah, sky the, turning but it's green. A, it's a description of, of, of three bravura descriptions of different kinds of clouds. Sorry, it's your book. You, have to, you, you, know your, you know your clouds. No, no I don't, uh, because one of the odd things about being a writer is you need to forget <laughs> the book you aren't writing in order to go on. And at the moment, I am stuck somewhere in Vienna in 1920, thinking about a starving population with a dreadful financial problem. (laughs) I could be making them read fairy stories. Some of them have landscapes, some of them have none. Um, And I always used to like the ones that did have landscape. I loved the ones where sort of three people walked into a wood and they all met some terrifying object or starving creature, and the two first ones, of course, wouldn't offer a share of their bread, and the third one did. But you've got this sort of sense of the wood. It's quite interesting, when you go back to them, how much your imagination embroidered the wood in the story, which is quite often much... This is true of all books. You have added something. And... um, and the English landscape is different. That's another thing. If you read English fairy tales, you get a much more cosy landscape. My, my very favourite British fairy story comes from Lincolnshire, and it's about a character called Yallery Brown. And Yallery Brown is a horrible-looking thing, which is yellow-brown in colour, and it lives under a stone. My grandparents lived in Lincolnshire, and I've got this sort of feeling of something bare and sparse with a big stone in it. Anyway, this stupid man turns the stone over and lets out Yallery Brown. And Yallery Brown says, I shall come and help you, and I am an elf, and your house will be wonderful. And he does all the things that those elves do that you find. I mean, a lot of them will only work for you if they have no clothes on. If you give them clothes, they go. But anyway, Yallery Brown is incredibly helpful to this man, but at the same time, he destroys the kitchens, houses, clothes, and servants of all the people in the vicinity. So the man becomes incredibly unpopular and has to leave home. Um, I can't remember the end, but it... <laughs> I don't you... think that's good enough, isn't it? It's an amazing story. <laughs> I was reading Passions of the Mind this morning, and, and I was reminded of the... when you say that words denote things, and... That language touches the world, and I wondered how that relates to fairy tales that are so fantastic and and unreal, and whether the same theory applies. Um, I think the words of fairy tales. It's a very interesting question because some of the words of fairy tales run parallel to the real world. Um, you get green grass and strong trees, and a wind, and a very dangerous lion or bear. And some of them are things that would never exist, like we were talking about this bird which carries a millstone in order conveniently to drop it on its mother, and then it can go back to being a little boy, which is what it ought to have been. Um, Imagining the millstone is quite hard. If you tried to to figure the scene properly, it wouldn't work. So you just, you just have to say the bird picks up the millstone. And, and so you get a very sparse style. Um, as soon as you get into any detail, it becomes incredible. Um, one of the, the great strengths about your, 
your reworking of fairy tales is that they are fully figured. Magical things do happen, but you do actually get a fully figured, sensorily pleasurable world. The clouds are great. I know you're pretending to forget them. They're wonderful. Um, and um, there, are, there are various different kinds of them, and, um, and you can see them. And in most fairy stories, there's no weather at mm. all. So, um, so there's that. There's a, and I do remember there's a nice toad. Oh, yeah, the toad is good. He's got a lovely wound on his head. Yes. And, and the poor scorpion. Is a, is yes, a, she, she, she is compelled to collect horrible creatures with wounds. Which are ungrateful for her attentions. <laughs> Please let me thank the Folio Society, Dame Antonia Byatt and Lawrence Norfolk for an excellent evening. Thank you. Thanks, Tony. Thank you. Thank you.